Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are three chapters away from finishing our time together in First and 2 Corinthians through our series called Counterculture. It's always good to have uh, the word in front of you. It'll be on the screens as I read from chapter 11 today, but it's always good to, to be able to see these things and have them right in, in front of your eyes as we talk about them. Um, so we're going to read in chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, and Paul is continuing, the Apostle Paul is continuing to defend, if you will, his ministry, uh, specifically about false teachers today and how they're really prevalent in the community, and we can identify with that, um, as there are many today in, in, in our world and in even the church. And so uh, before I read this, we're going to recite our affirmation together, which is just that, an affirmation, not scripture, but something we believe about the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Let's say it together. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the Word of God. We will embrace it as truth, no matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King into eternity. I'm going to read uh, from verse 1 to 15. And again, Paul is writing about false teaching uh, abounding in in this time and and for us today it's very relevant it says i wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness do bear with me for i feel a divine jealousy for you since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to christ but i am afraid that as the serpent deceived eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to christ For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things." Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I've preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. The boasting of mine, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region's of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise of his servants also disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I invite you to pray as it's always good to do and just ask God um, to speak and, and pray this simple prayer that God would give you a great spiritual discernment so you can discern truth in a world of falsehood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word as read I pray that by the Spirit we would understand it in the sense of our protection and guarded doctrine that Satan would not be able to deceive us individually or as a body, that you may guard us and protect us. And I pray that Christ would be exalted in our lives, that we would look to him alone 
for life and salvation. We pray these things in his name. And all God's people said, I want to show you all six images that are rather interesting images, and I think uh, they're kind of fascinating. There's, they're a, a little bit of a collection of random pictures, but the first one is this, and it's very relevant to this weekend, even as we celebrated, not celebrated, remembered 19 years ago, um, 9-11, and this was a, a picture that a tourist took right before that plane uh, went into one of the towers. Um, the next slide is a really random giant cow on the hood of a car. Um, and the next one is an island in Hawaii, which is this crescent-shaped island and also a star image. It's a very, I'll, I'll get to the point of all this later, uh, very interesting. Next one, this is amazing. I can do this in my kitchen, I don't know about you, but fried rice skill right there, pretty fascinating, amazing thing. The next one is an image of a rainforest, actually. Um, in 10 years, what has happened to a rainforest in its destruction, if you can see that. And then finally, this one is Turtle Island, which is pretty cool looking, right? Six images. Now, if I was going to do a little test, raise a hand, of how many of these images I just showed you were real, how many would raise your hand? Yeah, that's real. They're all phony. Let's go back to the first one. There was no plane in this image. It's a tourist photo. Doesn't even, don't even know if it was on that day, September 11th, 2001. The next one, photoshopped in. Cow sitting in the grass, laying in the grass, whatever they do, not on the hood of a car. Do you actually even know how they'd get up there? They wouldn't be able to. The next one, this is a sculpture that you can purchase in Japan right there on the right, and this is just photoshopped in. He could never do that. You know there would be rice on the floor if he tried. Um, Next one, this is a real island, but there is no star-shaped island. So this was photoshopped in, uh, in probably big-time way of falsehood as it symbolizes Islam in that regard. Uh, next one, this is not uh, a real picture of what happened in 10 years, but an actual live shot of them clearing out part of the rainforest in order to prevent fires from continuing to spread. And the last image, that's not what Turtle Island looks like on the top. It is what Turtle Island looks like on the bottom. The point is this. Most of us fall for this stuff hook, line, and sinker all the time. We see images, we hear stories, and we fall for it, and we're baited into thinking these are real. There'd be no reason why we really think that these wouldn't be real, but it shows a picture of culture that is easily duped and deceived. We fall for this hook, line, and sinker. That is the phrase, right? Popularized in the 19th century. The idea of fishing tactics where the silly fish comes along and sees the bait and sees the shiny hook and should see the line and the sinker, but they go for it because they're hungry. And it's in the same way that we are so easily brought, brought in and drawn into things that are not true. This is deception. And it often happens from the enemy when we are unprepared when we are unaware, when we are operating out of our fleshly appetites rather than by looking to God and walking in the Spirit. That is all the fish is doing, right? They are hungry for a worm, and so they'll go hook themselves on it. Last week, I reminded us that ever since the garden, which is the scripture passage we read in Genesis 3, Satan has been doing this and assaulting God's truth with lies. That's why he actually said what he said. Did he actually say don't eat? He twists it, doesn't he? And he succeeded in this for thousands of years to lead people astray, to destroy people, relationships, families, marriages, church bodies, and he does it through deception. 
And so this is a huge problem in our culture. We're easy to believe most anything. We have the internet, right? And everything's true on the internet, right? In fact, a great historian said this about the internet. Don't believe everything you read on the internet, Leonardo da Vinci. If you're a parent of a child, explain that to them later. We're just duped. We're a culture that reads things, consumes things, sees, oh, did you hear it? And we pass it on, stories we tell. And you and I have to be careful, especially as believers when we've been given the truth to guard it, which is absolute and absolutely God and from God. And we must not be deceived and must not take the bait. We fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. I read this, that 40% of people do not believe in absolute truth. And that's high, but guess what? That percentage is within the evangelical church. 40%. No, I don't think God says everything one way about everything. I don't think there's absolute truth. And outside of that, it's much higher. And how can we, the people of God, expect people to know the truth if even within our own walls, there's deception and relativism? So my hope this morning as we go through this passage is to unpack what Paul's unpacking, preparation for this deception, a way that you can see it and spot it. And Paul helps us as he helps the church spot the phonies of the day, the false teachers, teachers that had influence. And, and with that teaching influence must come godliness and good motive. And the alternative is a way of falsehood that leads to destruction. And so in this text that we read, it's broken up into four parts, really just briefly cover them. Paul is concerned about this. He then goes on to teach how you can spot false teachers by way of three points. And then he, can, he says how you spot the good using himself as an example. And then finally lands where he started with another warning that Satan is a disguised angel of light. And we have to be cognizant of that. And so in the first part, he expresses his concerns. He knows there are false teachers that we should know that are swaying people and leading people, even in the church, away from truth. And he knows this because he knows the way of Satan. He knows the story of creation. He knows what we just shared time in hearing and reading together in Genesis 3. He knows the lure of pridefulness of sinful men, and he considers it foolish. It's interesting in that passage there, Satan... Or God asks Eve in her answer, well, Satan deceived me, and I ate. It's pretty simple to her, but it's very complex in how that happens. And Paul says, this is foolishness. And there's a little play on words here in verse 1. He says, I wish you would bear with me a little in foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul is saying two things here. One, he was a fool for Christ. They regarded him as inferior to the super apostles. And so often they thought of him as a fool compared to these showy false teachers and Paul didn't care about that. He, he cared about simplicity and having the gospel go out. But what he thought was actually the irony of you're the fool. This is foolish that you would be duped by this new Jesus, new gospel, new spirit as I have laid the groundwork in the true gospel, the true word. And they are just eating this stuff up. And he says, this is foolishness. The impact that they're able to have and the people are falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. And Paul has this deep desire. In fact, in verse 2, it says a divine jealousy for the church in Corinth. And this is what it reads here in verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What is he talking about there? His jealousy was much like that of God's in Exodus when God told the people, I'm a jealous God. He had that same jealousy over them in order that he might bring them faithfully to Christ. 
And he uses this language of uh, an example in Jewish culture of the day, that the father's job of a Jewish daughter was to bring her to her betrothed, blameless and as a pure virgin. In the same way, Paul was saying, I, the father of the church in Corinth, your spiritual father, my job is to bring you blameless to Christ. Now, in that word, betrothed, it's synonymous very much so to what we would understand as engagement. When you were betrothed in Jewish culture, you were essentially married. But the goal was that it wasn't fully consummated until marriage happened, much like us spiritually. We have not fully been married to Christ until what happens? The marriage supper of the Lamb. We are called by Christ and redeemed and saved and adopted and chosen with the promise of things to come. It's why we share the Lord's Supper. We remember Christ's death and anticipate his return where we will have full unity with him. And Paul's job was to bring the church blameless to Christ, the bride of Christ, to the groom. And his heart was in holiness personally and within the church body that it would be important now, this is a great time to stop and examine our relationship with Christ in holiness and how we're walking and our relationship in the body of Christ, the local church. This verse is really key to understand this. The local church is a gathered people. In that day, it was one city, one church. In many ways, I wish it was that way now, but now we have multiple churches. If you don't like one, you get mad at something, you can go to another. If I say something today that you don't like, you can just find a new one, even within our own community. But the local church is important. It's a people gathered. And Paul refers to them collectively here as the bride of Christ. And so it's a really good stopping point to examine what does my relationship look like with real hope here in membership. Not for the sake of checking some box or some legalistic duty, but do I belong here to the people of God? Is that a step that's important? Because I, in that way, gather together and part of what the desire is to be brought blamelessly to Christ. Individually, we have that, but together as a community. And Paul is stressing that community here, I believe. And it's my desire as a pastor in the same way to bring our church, you individually, but as a church body, that our name would be written in the positive side of the list of seven churches in Revelation 2, that this church was faithful at corporately towards things instead of Everyone, once in a while, somebody kind of floating in and out, lack of commitment. Yeah, I kind of like go there on Sundays. This is a local gathering of the believers, God's people. It's super important. And it causes us to examine then our relationship personally with Christ. Have we trusted in the gospel? And if we've trusted in the gospel and we're redeemed and Christ has saved us at the cross, forgiven us and restored us, has he restored us just to God or to God and to each other? And that is important. I believe individually we'll stand before Christ at Judgment Day one day and, and we'll have to confess the name of Jesus whether we've accepted this free gift of salvation. And I think even corporately, what did our church, like, I mean, there's some ramification there, if you will, as far as we can read in Revelation 2, that our aim should be as a church collective to be presented to Christ in that way. And so we live lives of repentance and faith, a life of holiness, a life of purity, invited to fall at the feet of Jesus once and for all in salvation, forgiveness of sins, but then every day in our discipleship to keep going back and being cleansed in the word 
And this is extremely important to Paul. Why? He knew people would be deceived from it and enticed so easily away from the power and presence of God in our own sinfulness. Look at verse 3. You can sense the weightiness. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The aim was a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. And Paul says, your thoughts will lead you away. Did you catch that? What's interesting about that? Not your actions. Your thoughts are what is going to be deceived and led astray. Why? Because Satan will affect the things you think about. And he will implant lies and falsehoods to distract you from the truth. He will influence you by things that you know don't seem right, but you are willing to go there with your thoughts. And Becca hit the nail on the head. When you're left to your own loneliness and devices and your own thoughts, you're destined for trouble. Sometimes we think too much on the wrong things and Satan works his way in. It's why Paul wrote earlier in chapter 10 and verse 5 that we ought to take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, when the lie comes in from Satan, it says, you're not good enough. You should be ashamed of your walk with Christ. You're not worthy. You're, you're, you're not good looking enough. You're not smart. Any lie from Satan that affects us and presses us down, depresses us, if you will. You have no friends. You're lonely in this world. All of those things we ought to take captive and take a hold of for the obedience of Christ. Say, no, that's not, that's not from God. That's not how he wants, that's not how he views me. That's not Romans 8. It's why Paul then says in Romans 12, that we ought to be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. He knew this spiritual battle had everything to do with our mind and our thoughts. It's why we need to understand and trust in the words of Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, which are truth, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart is sick, not to be trusted what we feel. The Lord tests the mind. Our heart and our head are often connected. The things we feel produce thoughts, and thoughts have to be bounced off of truth. And Satan will trick us to believe that those thoughts are true, when if they're not compared against the truth of Scripture, we'll be in a dangerous position. Because what we put into ourselves eventually comes out. It's why it's so important that good doctrine and good truth goes in. It's why we sang the way we did about the creed this morning. I believe in. Even if we struggle to believe those things, we sing about them because they're true and right. We proclaim them. We say them as if to say them again to ourselves. One of the great joys of coming here every Sunday morning is a reminder of God's faithfulness and hope for me. I come in here a mess often. Like, I don't know which way's up. And we come to get together and, and look up, recenter ourselves on what we believe as foundational and true, and ask for God's protection against the enemy. And Paul says, there are so many false teachers out there. And then he writes these in verses 12, 4 through 12. He says, here's how you spot them, these three things, and I'll cover them rather br briefly. He says, here's the three ways you can identify another Jesus, another gospel, charisma, because they're shiny things and these charismatic, like charming people, and their abuse in relation to money. The first one in verse 4, he says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus 
than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now that's a pretty important verse about receiving the word, trusting in Christ as the only salvation, the only way. It's written on our entry, I'm the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father. There's only one way. The Spirit's deposited. That is the true gospel. And Paul says, you're so quick to fall for any other thing. That is not that, the way. And these false teachers were spreading this prosperity teaching, this kind of puffed up knowledge, completely different kind of Christianity, one completely unhitched from the word and not Christian at all. And we see this in our society today. People who claim Christian values but could care less about Jesus. And this is so, so dangerous. Here's just an example because it's a hot button issue. The issue of gay marriage, which God strictly says is wrong in his word all throughout. And Jesus comes along and, and people say, well, he didn't say anything about it. They use that line of argument. And I would say, well, that's, that's an impossibility because Jesus quoted back in Genesis. He quoted the marriage relationship. He quoted truth, right? And not only that, but Jesus was God in man's form. So God did say things about that throughout history. And if Jesus is God, you can't separate those two things. You can't separate the spirit. It's as if that's a breach of Trinity, that line of arguing. And some people will just say, no, God loves, he loves all people, kind of do what you want. That's, that's my version of loving God, but it is not the version that Jesus preached about. Jesus was for everyone. He was against everything they were about in their own sinful flesh, but he welcomed them to himself. And then you go on and you can argue in the New Testament, the apostles themselves were given authority by Christ. So if they wrote about it and talked about it, then Jesus himself talked about it. You see how that all mixes together? The truth of the Godhead, the Trinity. You can't separate them out. A pastor friend of mine recently posted this out of frustration, just what he saw in the culture. Probably wouldn't have done it this way in social media. He took some kickbacks, very dangerous. But it was spot on in what he said, and I'll just read it to you. In frustration, you can almost hear his pastoral heart. He says, there is a version of Christianity that has nothing to do with Christ. It's a hindrance to the kingdom, and it's actually the most insidious work of Hayton. Satan. And it is trash. It's a conspiracy of distraction and deception. Don't waste your time. Jesus is boring to them. The actual Bible and context is not interesting to them. And then he quotes from 2 Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, for God's sake, just read your Bible, he said. Rant complete. And I, and I saw that and I thought, that's it. People don't read the word. Which is a great segue, rather, the scripture being a reality. False teachers do not proclaim the word. They proclaim themselves as shiny objects. Like the new fishing lure of a different color. It's pretty shiny. They draw you in. They have charisma and charm. They operate with charm. They, they're the new things, the latest trend. They have this particular and peculiar way about them. They're widely popular. They have really bright, shiny teeth and fancy hair. You know who I'm talking about. And if you don't, just look for them and stay away. Look at verses 5 and 6. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Paul is having to kind of position himself against. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm so not so in knowledge indeed in every way. We have made this plain to you in all things. You see, the fact of the matter was Paul was plain. 
He wasn't the best communicator, like the many we see on TV and the many that tote that kind of puffed-up knowledge, but Paul knew the truth. He said, not a knowledge. I know what's real. But these guys, they proclaim themselves. They're about who's popular. They're about self-attention and pride. And he saw that in them. I mean, the first red flag that I often see is when people tell me about this new idea or new person and droves of people are following. I usually said that's a check of a red flag right there. The quantity of even people that are coming after these things in droves. I've saw it often as you go into Christian bookstores as a general rule of thumb. If you see a book written by someone and the face is the whole entire cover, don't buy that book it's likely that they're promoting themselves. It's just an easy, yeah, I'll go to the other books. The more humble-looking ones, right? There's examples of this in megachurches, giant conferences, even the, the trend recently, and some of you might still be a part of following Sarah Young and the Jesus Calling books and the devotionals and the mugs and the necklaces and the earrings and all. You see where I'm going with this? I actually got this article this week in my inbox, the title, subject title of the email. This is what it said, grow the kingdom through LED walls. And I thought, I am so off base. I didn't know that I had to purchase an LED wall in order to grow the kingdom. Technology can be used in the church, but that subject title was amazing to me. And you know how I feel about fog machines in the church, so I won't even go there. But man, is that all we needed? How foolish are we? And churches are getting sucked into this stuff. There's the third thing Paul says is false teachers care more about money in verses 7 through 9. He's defending himself when he says, Did I commit a sin and humbling rhetorical question myself so that you may be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? He didn't ask for money. In fact, he said in verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. In humility, he said, I don't want to burden you. I'm not going to ask you for money and be that TV preacher always asking for money. He says, and when I was with you, I was in need. He actually had need. He didn't burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia who cared about the gospel enough to support his ministry supplied for his need. Paul didn't care about money in that way. And TV preachers are one thing, but you and I have to be careful of how Satan can sneak into the lives of others, even respected Bible teachers at times, and lure them into temptation. This one's pretty self-explanatory. I don't need to unpack how TV preachers sometimes get after money and how sometimes people in the ministry want to gain more material and money things rather than care about the gospel, which is why I mentioned like items in bookstores that people are just capitalizing off of mugs and all this, another rule of thumb. Is that something that's widely accepted and widely marketed and widely capitalized on? I mean, think about that. I remember the prayer of Jabez. Maybe you remember that season in the life of the church. You don't hear about it much every, every once in a while. You'll hear about it, but not much now. But maybe you have the pillow or the throw rug or the, or the I don't even know. But there was a ton of stuff. And it's why Paul spots the phony interest in money. Now, I would say one of the theologians I respect greatly is John Piper. And to my knowledge, because this is, was his humility in ministry, He's written over 100 books and he never profited from one of them. All the ministry went right back into Desiring God Ministries. Since left Bethlehem as their uh, preaching pastor, but I have no doubt in his humility, his gospel ministry is not defined by what he will receive in the payoff. And so Paul tells them, spot the phonies. 
But there are ways to spot authentic ministers of the gospel. And he sees that in verses 10 through 12 by his own life as an example. He says, If the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced. He said, I can be evidence of a relationship with Christ. He had fruit to bear. And then he goes on and says, And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. It was evidenced in his love for the church. He cared deeply for them. And that's something that cannot be faked often. And then the third thing he shows in verse 12 is that he was going to continue to do the unpopular work of fighting for and against those who were teaching falsehood. What, do I, what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms. In other words, he was saying, I could be with them, but I'm not with them. I'll fight against them. And he likely had to fight his own pride to be apart from them. That was the unpopular thing. Think about it. It would have been much easier for him to join hands and link arms with these guys and just be on the money train of the false gospel. He could have easily done it. Likely would have been welcomed. They said, yeah, we could use you. He said, no, I'll take the unpopular, plain, humble route of defending the true gospel. The entrusted deposit to guard it, as the scriptures say. And so Paul then ends where he began with the warning, deception and disguise is very real and present in the church, so let's be careful and aware of who you listen to. For such men, in verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves, verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You have to stop and read that verse for what it's worth. Even Satan will appear as an angel of light. He uses the disguise for a reason. This guy's good. This guy has stuff to offer. But do you know the deception that's often behind that? Listen, church, Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but often when he stands in it. Satan, though we know, won't get away with this forever. Revelation 20 tells us that he will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire. We know that. But for now, as we walk the earth, he is free to do as he chooses under the sovereign hand of God, running loose in the world and deceiving many. And so you and I would be wise to cling to Christ and in truth and cling to truth and not take the bait and not fall for things hook, line, and sinker. And so what do we do? I give you these three applications in that play on words, hook, line, and sinker. The first one is this, be hooked to the word. Know your Bible. Do you know the scriptures? Look at 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have been given the word. Do you know your Bible? Do you read it well enough to know when there is something that comes up against it that's false? Do you understand the scriptures enough to see lies that are coming at you? 
or do you rely on somebody else to do that for you? And if that be the case, Satan has you probably where he wants you. But you have access. Never before, in our culture especially, do we have access to this, both in paper form and technologically. There's probably in a household in our day, 10 to 12 of these floating around, hopefully not dust-covered and areas you cannot find them, but one rich, well-written, well-read, or writing notes in well-read copy that you are feeding yourself with. You see, counterfeit detection, the way that works with currency is they study the true, authentic version, not the fakes. That's how they know when the fakes come and when they see the watermarks in the wrong spot or they see the the print is a little funny. They say, that's not the original. Do you know the original? And do you know the original author? In other words, do you spend time examining and acquainting, as Paul wrote to Timothy, the scriptures, which includes a study of doctrine? Do you know major, important, like deal breakers in the church, like deity of Christ? Things about the spirit, what the word says. There's like, like yeah, we can maybe disagree about some application on some things, but these are things that cannot be broken and intruded upon. So stay hooked to the word. The second thing is this, check the line. If you're a fisherman, you know that sometimes your line snaps. Are you checking it often and testing everything? We see this in Acts 17. The Bereans were good at this. We often say if you examine, you'd be like the Bereans in Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas as they were sending the apostles out by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. What they were saying, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What did they do? They went back to the word. They heard things and they said, I'm going to bounce that off of the scriptures. So when we hear things, the word on the street, take it to the word of God. Do you do that regularly? Do you test the line? Do you test everything? You have to be willing to not so quickly accept things without first doing the work of proving whether it's acceptable. And you have to examine Bible teachers and leaders and look at how they live. Are they caring more about money themselves? Are they worthy of listening to? What are they saying? Is it, is it true? Do we do this enough? Things in your spirit where you hear something and you just go, ah, oh, that sounds a little off. And you just trust in that spirit of discernment. And here's the third thing. Hold study. Stay alert and stay focused. Do you have the weight of a sinker, an anchor, somehow to bring you in this grounded way back to the truth of God? And I'll read these words from 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5 again. The time is here, friends is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul is counseling Timothy, don't go listen. And here's how the church often reads this. We read that verse and go, man, that's for everyone else. I'm here to tell you it's for you. I think in some ways we've accumulated our own teachers that fit our own version of Christianity, that fit our own ideals, the way we want to believe God in the way we want to believe Him. Be careful you don't fall into that trap of doing what you feel. You can fall just as easily as the next guy. I think the tendency is to go outside and look at people that are foolish, right? How could you be that dumb that you fell for that? While you sit by idly and fall for the same kind of tactic. We mock the fish, right? I mean, if you're a fisherman, you are overjoyed, but you mock the fish, right? 
How dumb can that fish be? Like I, get, I used a pink lure today, a purple one tomorrow. How dumb could they be? Be careful. May we be wise enough to trust God at his word. Going back to the garden as an example, that God, out of great love for his creature, his child, set boundaries for reasons, for his care and protection, for his goodness and love, his word being secure and his promise being secure. And our decision is really whether we want to trust in that or not. Did God actually say? I believe if you look, he, you can find what he actually said. And friends, we need to trust Christ, the true Christ, the true gospel, the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we could go on and on in this subject because it's so important that we live in a culture where falsehood and lies abound, where the internet is full of images that we just get sucked into and believe easily, debates and theories and arguments that we hear. And even in the life of this pandemic over the last six months, how many things have been spoken or theorized about or said and sometimes we don't even know what to believe but Father that's when your people will come back to your word and trust in who you are and trust in what you desire for us through obedience that we would take every thought captive for obedience Father there are things we can think about and have opinion about and then there are things we can do based on what we know and I pray that we would do things based on what we know when it feels better to not be loving, that we would look to your word and say, we need to love. When it feels better to go toward the sin, we need to go to your word and, and you've set forth boundaries to walk in purity and holiness. We need to go and act in those ways. And Father, when the gospel says that Jesus came to die for sinners and shed his blood for the redemption of man and for the reconciliation towards you, we should, by our own humility and repentance, believe and trust in Christ for salvation. That you welcome us sinful, deceived people who care often only about ourselves towards yourself through your son Jesus. And Father, there is no other way. And you don't promise us health and wealth and success. You promise us life eternal if we commit our lives to the Son in discipleship, and towards the coming guarantee of an inheritance and, and marriage feast where we will be joined with Christ for eternity. Father, until that day, keep us aware and alert and sober-minded and faithful that we will be trusting in Christ each and every day, looking towards what's ahead with the great security that you will lead us home safely. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.